This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. I'm Jim Thompson. I'm the uh, president and CEO here. Thanks to all of you for joining us this evening.、Um, We're going to be recording tonight's presentation, and、uh, there'll be an audio rebroadcast available on our website, www.rand.org.、Um, anyways, we're,、uh, we help improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. We have people here who are part of our policy circle. I want to thank all of you for being here and for all of your support.、Uh, there are many people here who are donors to this institution. And we're so grateful for what you do for us. We're also pleased that we have this evening、uh, members of the Consular Corps, as well as of the, of the U.S.、Uh, officers of the U.S. Coast Guard, as well as people from the city of Santa Monica and other elected officials. So now I want to introduce Admiral Thad Allen. He was the 23rd Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard starting in May 2006. He's had a, a distinguished career. And was involved in responses to many、uh, disasters, including Hurricane Re- Katrina, and then, of course, the recovery in the Gulf area、uh, in after the Deepwater Horizon. He was the for which he was the also the incident national incident commander. So he's recently retired from the Coast Guard, joined Rand in the fall. We're pleased to have him as a senior fellow, and I'd like to ask Thad to come to the podium. Well, let me start out by、uh, thanking Jim for all of his service. He's、uh, initiated a transition, as many of you may know. He's an icon and a veritable foundation of Rand, and、uh, we're going to miss him. And thank you, Jim, for everything you've done for the organization. <laughs> My name is ThadAllen.org. <laughs> Roger, stand up. Here's your local Coast Guard commander, Roger Laferriere. Roger is a personal hero of mine because I put him into the toughest place you could ever put anybody during the oil spill. He was the incident commander in Homa, Louisiana, and I thought for a while we we're going to have to negotiate a status of forces agreement <laughs> and develop a counterinsurgency tactic <laughs> to keep Roger and his people safe down there. Thank you, Roger, for everything you've done for the Coast Guard and your country. You. you have a tremendous commanding officer. Here at LA Long Beach. Thank you, Roger.、Uh, I was getting interviewed by the press before I came in here. I have to stop and a little aside here. And、uh, I consider myself kind of a sailor. You know, I've、uh, 39 years in the Coast Guard. Most of my operational experience has been on ships doing search and rescue and so forth. And I was trying to explain to this individual how you create unity of effort. And、uh, he stopped me and he said, "You're being too academic." And I thought the simple concept of unity of effort should not be that academic. He said, "Can you make it more simple or say it this way?" Jim and I said, "I work for Rand. 
we developed the right answer. We don't give you the answer you give us. So keeping true, keeping true. He's still out there scratching his head somewhere. I won't identify the network. Uh, it's great to be here. I actually was on this stage uh, not long ago talking about generally the same topic, but I'm going to try and do a little deeper dive uh, tonight with you all since I'm talking to you individually uh, during the uh, Setting Politics Aside event, which was really excellent last fall. Uh, my, the first time I was in this room, I think, was probably around 2003 or 2004, where I came out and I delivered a lecture as the Chief of Staff of the Coast Guard, and we inked an agreement to start a fellowship here uh, to put Coast Guard officers at RAND. So I'm going to embarrass the second person. Charlene, stand up. Where are you at? Charlene Downey, our Coast Guard RAND fellow. Uh, the last time I saw Charlene before she became a RAND fellow, we were both at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, where uh, Charlene was leading a Coast Guard detachment uh, conducting security, not only uh, waterside security, but security for uh, prisoner security. And Believe it or not, for the military tribunals, the Coast Guard is involved in providing security to the uh, courtrooms down there. So thank you, Charlene, for your duty as well. I'd like to talk a little bit tonight about uh, the environment we're operating in, the threats we're facing. And then I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the experiences I've had over the last several years, uh, most notably with Hurricane Katrina. But I would like to talk about Haiti a little bit, the earthquake that occurred on the 12th of January last year. And, of course, the oil spill, and this particularly uh, poignant moment for me in the country because tomorrow will mark the first anniversary of the explosion on the Deepwater Horizon where we lost 11 people. Uh, the good news was, due to some heroic efforts of the people operating offshore supply vehicles sitting under that supply vessels under that oil rig under very, very trying conditions, they were able to save over 100 people and evacuate 17 people that were critically injured. So I think what often gets lost in that operation is what the watermen out there did, uh, the Coast Guard rescue swimmers, and I'm, I'm proud to say that this week they were all officially recognized with commendations in New Orleans to celebrate the uh, one-year anniversary. We live in a complicated world. It's getting more complicated. Populations are increasing. Uh, global trade is making us more connected. That's producing more efficiencies, but it's also creating more challenges as we move information, uh, financial information, goods around the world. We have greater populations near water. Population is increasing. We've got climate change. We are looking at potential rises in the, the sea level. We have population infrastructure at risk. And the modern means by which we are starting to interact socially like we have never had before, the Internet, is at risk as well. As well. What I have tried to understand over my career in the Coast Guard what I've tried to bring to the responses uh, that, I've been, that I've participated in and been responsible for is to try and create a framework by which to understand crises and create what I think is the overarching goal that we have to focus on whenever one of these events occurs, and that is unity of effort. And let me distinguish unity of effort from unity of command. Unity of command is a military doctrinal term that is embedded in Title X of our U.S. Code that means that no matter where you're at in the military, you can recite your chain of command to the president. You have to do it when you enter boot camp, officer candidate school, or Coast Guard Academy. When we move out of defense operations, 
things get a little more fuzzy. There's not clear uh, subordinate superior roles by our cabinet officers. But the overarching imperative from our public is a whole of government response, unity of effort, and they want to see effective response. And we seem to keep coming up short. We don't quite measure up. We have to regroup. I have come in twice after incidents have begun, and I've said on several occasions, they said, if you had to do over again, what would you have done? I said, I'd like to have been there at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) But we shouldn't have to do that. We should expect that the government and the procedures, the doctrine, standard operating procedures should serve us all well and create that unity of effort. But it is not, not that easy. I'm going to give you a couple of examples from the responses I've been involved in. I'm not going to go into great detail. If you want to delve in further, we can do that during questions and answers. But I'm going to, I'm going to submit to you there are a couple of things that we have to do to start creating leaders in this country and organizational functionality in this country that allow us to do what the public expects us to do. Because I fear there is a growing gap between the expectations of the public of their government and what they see their government produce. And unfortunately, that is juxtaposed against what they see in the rest of their lives. Let me explain this really briefly. You've all gone on, I'm assuming most of you have gone on and ordered a book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. And you get the inevitable email the next day. If you like this book, (laughs) you like these five books, right? My wife bought me this interesting contraption where you put jalapeno peppers in this rack and you barbecue them. You make chili poppers. It's really neat. I went online because I wanted to buy a bigger one. Two days later, I went on underground weather to see what the weather was like. You know what happened? I had a pop-up ad for chili popper cookers. (laughs) In our everyday lives, we're interacting with social media, the 7-by-24-hour news cycle, and we are creating patterns of lives that are being captured. And we want that for service. We expect that because of efficiency. Sometimes we get concerned about personal information, But in the end, we are consumers, and we want that to happen. I fear that in this environment, we're now turning to our government and kind of expecting that kind of efficiency out of a government that was produced by our founding fathers with checks and balances, restrictions on what the government can do in regard to individual liberties. We don't mind if Amazon knows what books we buy and what five they like to give us. We don't want the government to know that. But we want the government to be effective. And what I'm presenting to you is a metaphor for what I feel is a growing gap between expectations and what the government is capable of delivering. And we have to come to grips with that gap and fix it because we don't have the luxury to have these events occur. And with every sequential one, there's a lesson learned. We have to go back and say, how can we fix it? The public is going to have short tolerance for having us fix it after the fact. They want it done right the first time. On the 29th of August, 2005, Hurricane Katrina came ashore. Uh, For the next week, we all suffered the agony of seeing the levees breached, the flood walls breached, New Orleans flooded. We saw the Superdome filled with people and then implode sociologically and behaviorally. We saw that shifted to the convention center. On the 5th of September, 2005, I was called by Secretary Chertoff, the Secretary of Homeland Security, and they asked me to go to New Orleans 
and fix what was going on down there as a deputy principal federal official to Mike Brown, the FEMA administrator. I had sat there in agony for about a week watching what was going on. Uh, I'd been involved in discussions not only in the Coast Guard but in the Department of Homeland Security and in the Department of Defense about whether or not we should invoke the Insurrection Act, what was the status of posse comitatus in regard of employment of U.S. forces, what was the status of the National Guard in relation to the governor's ability to call the forces up, who pays for them, who controls what the National Guard does. But in the long run, what had happened was forces were flowing into New Orleans that weren't working for anybody. Urban search and rescue teams, State policemen, firefighters deployed under mutual assistance packs. Coast Guard. We saved 33,000 people in seven days. Our small boat crews and our helicopter crews. We reported back to our own chain of command, but there was no joint effort. In the military, you would see a joint task force commander running all of that. Russ Honore was down there. Y'all remember Russ? Joint task force Katrina, telling the press not to get stuck on stupid and doing what he could with the military. As I flew in over uh, New Orleans on the morning of the 6th of September, this is at that point eight days after the hurricane had come ashore, I realized that we as a nation had gotten something wrong. And what we had gotten wrong was our ability to define what the problem was, establish the objectives, and create an effective response. And here's what I mean by that. And, here's, and I'm going to try and create a case for how we have to think in the future about dealing with unexpected events and challenging our existing mental models of how we work in this country. Most people thought Hurricane Katrina was a hurricane. By the morning of the 6th of September, I knew it was not. Had it just been a hurricane, ground zero would have been Waveland and Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, where we had 25 feet of water come in and actually overtopped I-10 five miles inland. What we had was a breach of the industrial canal levee, and then the collapse of drainage canal walls in the city of New Orleans that were made to empty water into Lake Pontchartrain. Water had been driven up into the lake and then had been driven back into these canals. That is what flooded New Orleans. The Mississippi River levees remained intact. What we failed to understand late on Monday the 29th and early on the 30th, and this is due to lack, in my view, to situational awareness, so we went clear to the White House independent of DOD because they were not involved in the issue at the time, was a failure to understand we weren't dealing with a hurricane anymore. And Allen's model of what happened in New Orleans was the equivalent of a mass effect used on the city of New Orleans without criminality. I didn't tell that to the guy that just interviewed me. (laughs) He had trouble enough with what I was saying. Let me decrypt it. Had terrorists blown the levees, The FBI special agent in charge in New Orleans would have been on scene. There would have been a crime scene. We would have handled the response as consequence management. We would have supported the the mayor and the governor. But there would have been federal preemption under U.S. law. Absent that justification or that basis, according to the 14th Amendment, all powers not granted to the federal government are reserved to the states, including response to natural disasters. And I can tell you this was discussed hot and heavy in the halls of the Pentagon, the White House, and everything else. There was no basis to preempt the local government. Once I understood that, we knew what we had to do at that point. I sat out with Russ Honore. We made an agreement that I would be what's called the supported commander. He would be the supporting commander. These are metaphors. They actually have term 
of law and doctrine inside the military. And we decided to create a structure for the mayor and the governor that would allow us to effectively respond to what was going on in New Orleans. We divided the city up into sectors. We assigned each sector to one of Russ Honore's components. The 82nd Airborne got the Central Business District. Lower Ninth Ward and St. Bernard Parish were assigned to the Marines. The National Guard, under a non-aggression treaty, was assigned a sector, even though they reported to the governor. <laughs> and we made it work. And what we did was we, we provided security, access, logistics, and support for uh, local police officers and state policemen that went door-to-door and made sure there was nobody else to be saved and started dealing with a very sensitive and difficult issue of remains, recovery, and removal. But in every case, it was a local law enforcement officer that made the decision. We provided support, access, and logistics and security for them. So you'd have a 30-person team with high-water vehicles, rubber boats, moving through the city. You saw the signs they painted, the symbols they painted with spray paint. And in that manner, we were able to sweep the city. Actually, we did it three times. Went through and touched every building three times as the water went down to make sure we covered it. So we created a paradigm that empowered us to help the mayor when he'd actually lost continuity of government and the ability to apply any of the forces that were being sent in to any kind of mission effect. So once we understood the problem and the solution, we were able to make progress, Okay. Uh, I would submit to you that if we don't get it right up front, we don't get the mission statement correct and the objectives straight, we're going to have problems creating unity of effort and creating that whole of government response the public expects of us. Now, I can go into a lot of detail, but I'm going to stop there because I want to talk about Haiti real quick. On the 12th of January last year, Haiti was struck with a devastating earthquake. Uh, you normally think, why is the Commandant on the Coast Guard involved in an earthquake in Port-au-Prince? Well, the fact of the matter was uh, we had Coast Guard cutters patrolling off of Haiti and Cuba, which we do routinely every day, regarding uh, illegal migration from both, uh, and we also do that from the Dominican Republic. So our cutters the next morning pulled into Port-au-Prince. Some of the first folks on scene saw the devastation. We're reporting back, creating situational awareness for what was going on. Uh, because the Coast Guard was the first on scene, I went with Secretary Napolitano, to a meeting at the White House with the president. He called the cabinet in, made it abundantly clear to everybody this was a hemispheric neighbor. Uh, they were consequential to us in terms of migration, the number of Haitians that lived in this country, the potential for establishing temporary protective status under immigration law for the Haitians that were here, a lot of issues at play. And he basically fired up the cabinet, folks. They walked out of there, and I would say the organizational endorphins were peaking. Okay. Uh, but one of the issues you need to talk about when you're trying to create unity of effort is how do you integrate across the cabinets? And politicians are loath to subordinate one cabinet officer to another. Unless you have a very strong structure inside the White House, it is an integrating function to do that. And you're operating outside Department of Defense operations, it gets ambiguous. Right at the time, you need absolute clarity in my view. And in my case, uh, I spent a lot of time with Secretary Napolitano, who wanted to help in the worst way. But the fact of the matter was we were dealing with a sovereign nation, and the principal federal official to help them from the United States was U.S. Ambassador to Haiti. And his uh, supporting cast was USAID. And everybody else would be supporting them as we supported Haiti. We happened to have a Lieutenant General Keene from the U.S. Southern Command was in Haiti when this happened. So we were able to create a joint task force 
for the Haitian response was very similar to the joint ta- task force we set up with Russ Honore to support Katrina. And the things that were similar to both of these events, Hurricane Katrina and Haiti, was the fact that we lost continuity of government without decapitation, and the government was incapable of taking the resources that were flowing in and applying them to mission effect, except on an order of magnitude that was 20 or 30 times that of New Orleans. I had to advise my secretary, so I had a long talk with her. I said, listen, if you want to do something that will really help the situation, why don't we export what, export what worked in New Orleans to Haiti? Why don't we take a senior FEMA official and a Coast Guard admiral, put them together with an incident management team, put them on a C-17 with the mobile communications gear, the satellite equipment, and put them on the grounds of the U.S. Embassy and give that away to the U.S. Ambassador. Give them the capability that we should have had on the ground the first day in New Orleans. We agreed to do that. Craig Fugate and I got together, the director of FEMA, uh, and we positioned a team down there. At the same time, we got together with USAID. We created a cell to start prioritizing what had to go into the country in terms of commodities, people, equipment, and so forth. One of the problems we had was there was one airstrip in Haiti. It is unlit. The first 24 hours following the earthquake, there were 13 landings. We had a very serious meeting with the cabinet and the president, and it was decided that Secretary Clinton would go to Haiti and meet with President Preval and ask if we could take the airspace and coordinate it to try and increase the throughput. She went down and had the meeting. We were given authorization uh, to take the airspace for 72 hours. After they found out what we could do, they said, keep it. (laughs) We controlled the airspace out of Tyndall Air Force Base in the panhandle of Florida under the 1st Air Force. This is the same command that has responsibility for defense of the airspace of the continental United States. The overall command is at Colorado Springs and NORAD, but the actual tactical deployment of fighters and so forth happens out of uh, Tyndall Air Force Base. They took control of the airspace in Haiti. They took the cues that were established by the team working with USAID on how we should slot the landings. And we had to account for things like the vice president of Bolivia getting airborne with the plane load of supplies and saying, I'm landing in six hours. And the Haitian government did not want them turned away. So we had to demonstrate that we could equally manage the airspace with access for everybody. And we did. And at the height of the airlift coming into Port-au-Prince, we had 160 landings in one day. Now, the reason we had to do this was the port collapsed. The container port in Haiti just fell in on itself due to bad engineering and so forth. It was going to be weeks or months before we were able to reestablish container throughput into Port-au-Prince. And it was about a 12- or 13-hour drive over the mountains from Santo Domingo to get there by road. So the airlink was critical, and taking control of the airspace was critical. Uh, the final thing I would say in relationship to Haiti was the decision to leave the final distribution of relief supplies, water, meals ready to eat, uh, blankets, and so forth, to the non-governmental organizations that currently existed in Haiti. The other difference between Haiti and the hurricane was that we had a standing UN mission in Haiti that was doing long-term recovery, led by the Brazilians. We had a problem there because they were truly decapitated. We lost the senior leadership of the UN mission. They were killed in the earthquake. So a separate uh, complicating factor was the need to make sure that they were reconstituted in the long run 
the long-term reconstruction of Haiti and the international effort there needed to be controlled through the UN. And our objectives was always to focus on the near-term requirements, but ultimately migrate this back uh, to the, uh, the UN mission under the Brazilians once they redeployed their forces in there. Hold you there. I'm going to go to the oil spill now. You all with me? Okay. All right. Kind of like rapid succession here. Uh, I've been often asked uh, to compare Hurricane Katrina to the oil spill. They both happened in the Gulf. It's obviously the same. After that, there are very few comparisons, folks. Uh, and I've told everybody for a lot of reasons that uh, the response to the oil spill was more like Apollo 13 than it was Hurricane Katrina. And the reason I say that is uh, there was no human access to the well. Everything we did and knew that happened down there, we knew from remotely operated vehicles and remote sensing. The final solution in closing in the well, capping it, containing it, and then uh, drilling the relief wells was all done with no human hands through remotely operated vehicles. Very, very difficult at the height of the operations, within one mile of the surface point of the well site, we had 35 vessels operating. And subsurface, we had 20 ROVs operating at the same time. At the same time, we had aircraft flying overhead, and we had eight near-mid-air collisions in the first six weeks. So what we needed to do was focus on containing the well, capping the well, killing the well, and then we needed to focus on the oil that was coming to the surface, trying to get as much of that as we could offshore, knowing that where the oil was coming up was exactly where we had all those 35 ships. So we couldn't sit there and wait for it to come up and skim it or burn it or disperse it. And every day for 85 days that the oil came to the surface, it was under different wind, uh, tide, and current conditions. So we didn't have a large monolithic spill. We had hundreds of thousands of patches of oil that threatened the entire five states in the Gulf Coast that completely dwarfed any of the response requirements regarding boom, skimming equipment, and those sorts of things that had ever been written to a plan. You could talk about flow rate, whether BP had it right. Folks, I'm telling you, it didn't matter. When you got, when you got that much oil threatening five states, there's not enough boom and skimming equipment in the United States to be able to defend every inch of coastline to the degree the governors, the parish presidents, and the county executives wanted. Which brings me to the other issue regarding the oil spill. Uh, I was interviewed on CNN this evening. Some of you may have saw it before you came here. Somebody's already talked to me about it. I I'd said in a press interview last week it was the most political event I've ever been involved in. And it was. It was because of the political cognitive dissonance between what local leaders perceived to be their role in, in managing a response. Remember, state and local governments are responsible for responses, except except oil spills. Under federal legislation, there is federal preemption. There's a requirement to establish a federal on-scene coordinator will coordinate because the well was 45 miles offshore and was not in state waters. Oil slicks are agnostic to state boundaries. But the political leaders thought that they should be given the local resources to deal with the spill that was in their area. And today, they're still upset with me. They're upset with the federal government. But I have to tell you, there is no other way to run this than with a unified federal effort. And one of the big challenges I had to deal with was a political nullification of our response doctrine based on what they understood 
to be their roles if it was a natural disaster. And I could not get past that, number one. I could not get past the overall impression that uh, was incongruous to most people that the responsible party could somehow be consequential in the response. That somehow they would not be able to subordinate their responsibilities, their fiduciary responsibilities to their shareholders. Other than that, it wasn't complicated. (laughs) I see Roger grinning back there. (laughs) Pretty stressful down at home in those days. (laughs) So uh, uh, just a couple of takeaways. Uh, We had to adapt and, uh, and expand our response doctrine. We had to spread our command and control over an area much larger than we ever contemplated in our incident command system. We had to delegate authority for decision-making down to junior officers that were forward operating bases, so if they saw oil, they could react to it. Because i got to tell you, there were everybody, every politician out there and every National Guard helicopter was trying to find oil where we weren't, and then calling Channel 4. Okay. One of the big breakthroughs, uh, or at least one of the big turning points in my, in my personal involvement, and this is not talking about the work that was done every day, uh, arduous work done in... Heat coefficients of 110 degrees on Barataria Bay, laying boom, trying to supervise what was going on. People are being physically exhausted. And what I was trying to do is at the highest level, at the strategic level, try and get this thing where we needed to have in terms of resourcing and where it was we were trying to go. And a major turning point, at least in my personal involvement, came in the second week of June when I went to Pensacola with the president. He met with the leaders down there, and that night he came back and he gave address in the Oval Office. And on the way back on Air Force One, uh, he was having a meeting with some of his aides, and I, was, I went out and had a cup of coffee. I was talking to the Air Force guys who were running the galley. And somebody bumped into me, and I turned around, and it was the president. He said, sit down, I want to talk. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and he looked at me, he says, do you have enough resources? And I said, Mr. President, I think that's the wrong question. Uh, resources are not an issue between BP and the U.S. government. We have enough money. I've got significant issues with supply chain. Skimming, booming equipment, the things we need out there to try and get them where we need to go. And by the way, our current regulations require refineries and tanker operations in Oregon to have a certain amount of equipment, and we can't move it because we legally have told them they have to have it. We need to be able to move that. We couldn't move spill response equipment from Navy bases because we could not relieve the commanding officers of the civil liability if they had a spill while it was gone. So we're fighting all this stuff. I said, we'll work through that, Mr. President. We'll work through that. I said, I think I forgot something that we learned in Haiti. He says, what's that? I said, "Uh, tomorrow I'm going to call Norty Schwartz, the chief of staff of the Air Force. I'm going to call Mike Mullen. I'm going to talk to Sandy Winnefeld at U.S. Northern Command. We need to take the airspace. And he said, why? I said, for a couple of reasons. Number one, mid-air collisions are a bad thing in the middle of a spill. And we've had too many close calls. Second, I have vessels of opportunity that have been handed to me because BP is trying to mitigate the impact of the spill economically by bringing watermen and shrimpers on. That looked like a good idea. I equate the vessels of opportunity to the Minutemen that showed up at Concord before the revolution. (laughs) They had passion, commitment, and resources. But some of them only had a musket and some of them had a knife. And we had to form them up, teach them to march, and beat the British. Other than that, it wasn't a challenge. I had a waterborne militia that was in that particular state. And we had never tried to insert command and control and organizational structure over these guys that don't speak into the command system. 
You don't speak into the command system in Thibodeau. Okay? And I told the president, we need to consolidate our surveillance and reconnaissance in one place. So they said that we have these guys out there, we can direct them to the right place to recover oil. And we need to do this more safely. So we actually set up an air coordination center in the exact same place where they had set it up to coordinate the airspace in Haiti. Except this one was populated by guys with ponytails from the Fish and Wildlife Service, NOAA scientists, people from NASA, uh, P-3 pilots from uh, CBP, Customs. And we have this saying in the military, uh, you know, if you're joint, we, call, we, we say you wear a purple uniform. You've probably all heard that. Folks, this was plaid. <laughs> this was plaid. But it worked. And we shouldn't forget that. It worked. We can knit together interagency DOD forces, take a paradigm that worked in a purely military situation, like taking the airspace in Haiti, and we can turn that around and make it work in a disaster. And in fact, if we have a hurricane tomorrow, the next season here in the Gulf, we will activate that air coordination center at Tyndall, and that's where we will run the search and rescue for the entire Gulf out of there because we've turned that around. Okay? Uh, so let me make a couple of points here, and then we can maybe go to some Q&A. And I'll dig down on any of this stuff as far as you want to go. Uh, first of all, unity of effort is number one. And sometimes you're going to have to achieve that without any legal mandate or authority to order anybody around. If you don't do it, you're going to sub-optimize the response. You have to do it. The question is, how do you make that happen? And I think it's a combination of raising leaders in the United States that know they have to work across boundaries, they have to network, and they have to collaborate. It's almost a different form of public administration, even domestic programs now. No one agency holds the answer to. If it's childhood nutrition, if it's education issues, it's usually a multiple-faceted complex problem that nobody owns a single answer to. We have to learn how to collaborate, network, and partner across stovepipe boundaries. We also need to understand we will never have another event in this country that won't involve public participation. And by public participation, I mean everybody other than the people that have statutory responsibility for the event. I'm talking about the 7 by 24 hour news cycle. CNN, Fox, they're on 24 hours a day whether there's news or not. And they have this peculiar thing that start. You guys have already seen this, where they fill the space with reporters interviewing reporters. <laughs> I find that so curious. But the space will be filled. Non-governmental organizations, faith-based organizations. If somebody shows up with passion, resources, and commitment, and you don't use them, they're going to Channel Four. They're going to blog. They're going on Facebook. They're going to act out in social media. We have to fill a space. We have to be transparent. We have to figure out ways to involve these people. But we have to minimize, and I've worked a lot with the NGO community in the last year, we have to minimize something that we have come to call SUVs, spontaneous, unaffiliated volunteers. That's grandma that wants to hand out water bottles. That's somebody that wants to go down and help clean turtles. We've got to get them into a structure, and we've got to get the NGOs into a structure that interacts with the incident command structure moving forward. Because I will tell you this, we cannot avoid what's happening in our external environment with the social media and the news. 
I had a conversation with John Holdren a while back, the science and technology advisor to the president. And he says there are three ways you deal with climate change. Suffer, adapt, or manage. I would submit to you that what's happening around us in terms not only of our day-to-day lives, but in crisis response, in terms of the 7 by 24 hour news cycle, the internet, high speed, high performance computation, how we manage spectrum right now, is the sociological equivalent of climate change. You can say it doesn't exist, but I'm t- folks, it, it exists. And we have three ways to deal with it. We can suffer, we can adapt, or we can manage. Because if we don't, the space is going to be occupied anyway by people that may be less informed who don't have qualifications to comment on it. And I think you all know by now the responsibility for the veracity, fidelity, robustness, and honesty of anything that's posted on the Internet rests with the reader. With the reader. The other thing we need to understand is anything that we say, even what I'm saying here today, is going to become the sociological equivalent of non-biodegradable plastic. Years from now, they're going to find a disc that Alan said, who is this idiot? And that will be our generation's version of arrowheads. <laughs> we have to fill the space. And so my counsel to my folks, when I was coming on the Coast Guard and operating with these, these crises, and we set up a website called geoplatform.gov. It's a GIS-based information system with data overlay, so you can find out where the oil was on the shoreline, where the boom was at, where the turtles were at, where you could call for claims. you got to give that away. you got to make it transparent moving forward. You have to do it. So my theory on dealing with the social media is where is Waldo? You all know where is Waldo? You fill the space, and you make them Waldo. Let me, let me close with one final statement. We can go to Q&A. Uh, it's very easy to give clear, unambiguous guidance to your people and create unity of effort. It doesn't, it doesn't a lot of, require a lot of analysis, but it requires commitment and leadership. Uh, the 9th of September, I was called to Baton Rouge by Secretary Chertoff. He said, close the door. I went in. He said, listen, there's going to be a news conference in 30 minutes, and you're relieving Mike Brown of the entire response. In case you want to know how I learned about it, what my strategic guidance was, what the concept of operations was, you just heard it. which is the same one I got on the 5th of September, which was go to New Orleans. Okay. He called Mike Brown in, had that conversation with him, very painful, very painful news conference. Uh, He left. I went up to his office. It was completely empty. Uh, I'm not sure whether he had moved in or moved out really quickly, but it didn't matter. My my aide looked at me, and she said, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I've got a new command. I want an all-hands meeting. Well, at the Joint Field Office in Baton Rouge, there were 5,000 people. We're operating out of an old Dillard's warehouse on Florida Avenue and a Dillard's store. I said, find the biggest space you can and get everybody there. And they ended up getting about 2,500 people in the lower floor. I uh, got up on a desk. I got a loud hailer. And I said, listen, I've got to go back to New Orleans and make sure everything's going to go there, and I'm going to come back here and take over the larger job. But I'm going to tell you this right now. I'm going to give you an order, whether I have the legal authority to or not, and this is my guidance to you as a commander, metaphorically. You're to treat everybody that's been involved in this uh, incident as if they were a member of your own family. Your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, and I'm telling you it for two reasons. 
number one, uh, if you make an error, you're going to err on the side of doing too much, and that's okay in this situation. Number two, if anybody has a problem with what you've done, you tell them I told you to do it and their problems with me. People started openly weeping, and there was a collective sigh that changed the barometric pressure in the building, metaphorically. <laughs> Nobody had ever told them what was important, what the objectives were, how to interact with the people we were trying to serve, what their responsibilities were, and if they carried out those responsibilities, what they could expect from leadership. It doesn't take a lot to just say that. It's a lot harder to translate that into organizational efficiency and create the unity effort you need to moving forward. Uh, I've been working at RAND for the last six or seven months on how to bring NGOs into the incident command process, how to bring them into efforts regarding uh, community resiliency, working with the uh, American Public Works Association and how we work at the city level uh, to deal with their concerns about how to get infrastructure back online. But at bottom, we have to do a better job at creating unity of effort. We have to close that gap uh, because the American people expect it, they demand it, and frankly, we should just do it. So I'd be glad to answer any questions you may have for me. Audience will be taking a few questions. Please raise your hand and keep it short and brief so we can get to as many people as we can. All right, we'll take the first question over here. Thank you. I have great respect for how you maneuvered what you maneuvered. My question to you is now, particularly in lieu of the anniversary of BP spill tomorrow, where uh, the BP officials have been given great bonuses while we're, while we're back uh, drilling offshore again. Um, the memory of the people in the United States seems to be very short. In your opinion, what can we do, what can you do to follow through with everything that you've done? I'm going to give you a little bit of a strange answer to that. Uh, two weeks ago, I was interviewed by New Zealand Public Radio. And the reason I was interviewed, I don't want to scare anybody here, uh, I was in New Zealand in Christchurch for the earthquake. Don't get up and run. <laughs> we're all evacuated out. We were all safe. Uh, tables turned over. It was pretty, pretty scary, and they got some real problems down there. Uh, and they said, what can we learn from Katrina since we're trying to recover down here? And I'm going to give you a simplistic answer, but I, t I said, you need to do two things. You need to get a consensus on how to move forward, and you need to do it rapidly. If you don't do any of those things, you're going to lose funding and political support because there is a half-life. It is better to understand what you agree upon now and do it, even if it's only 40% of what needs to be done, to try and wait for a 70% solution and not have the political support of the funding when you need it. You have to move while you have uh, momentum. You've overcome the center of gravity. Uh, anything that goes beyond 6 or 12 months runs the risks of being relegated to the 7-by-24-hour news cycle, and these people are filling the, the days up with reporters talking to reporters. I'm not trying to be cynical here, but we have to get some discipline in our system that allows us to react, turn these lessons around, and know that you should take the airspace on the first day 
and not have to be prodded by it when you have to be down there with the president in Pensacola. Uh, it is a challenge moving forward. It's a complex world. It's made more complex politically by our inability to subordinate one cabinet officer to, the another, to another. But we have to figure out to take the concepts that we've successfully in- implemented since the Goldwater-Nichols Act in 1986, and you can't move it into the private sector, and I mean in the interagency, because you don't have unity of command. But you have to learn how to achieve that effect. If we don't, we have have not kept the promise to our people. I have a question to your right in the back. Evening, Admiral. I'm a fellow colonial and a brand new officer in the Navy JAG Corps. My question to you is... That is a George Washington University colonial. Yes, sir. Thanks for coming. My question to you is, in light of everything you've told us about the need to increase the operational uh, coordination and the unity of command, what do you see as the number one challenges, for instance, if we were going to have a natural disaster in a week, knock on wood, what would you do immediately, say, as the most pressing issue to increase that unity of command and effort, or changes, etc.? Well, first of all, I recommended after Hurricane Katrina that the Department of Homeland Security create a cadre of at least four teams that were deployable with a senior leader. I don't want to call him a principal federal official or a national incident commander, but somebody that can represent the secretary and the federal government, be the face of the response, and be accountable. They should have a cadre that they trust from uh, legal advice to public affairs on a flyaway team. They're on a tether that's six or eight hours, similar to what we do for our own special forces. And you got to have two on each coast. And when one flies away, the other one comes on. And I think between both coasts with four teams, that would be enough. I made those recommendations following Katrina. They didn't get into any of the reports. That was in in the Coast Guard, we would call it. It's in the too hard to locker. (laughs) (laughs) All right. But sooner or later, we're going to have to create the capability to do planning and coordination within the interagency. It may not resemble ultimately what a J-3 or a 5 is in the military. We have to create the capability in Homeland Security first. It has to be exported to the rest of the interagency. It has to be based on the incident command system. And we have to make it national doctrine so politicians don't feel there's a gap in understanding what the standard operating procedures are and feel the need to act. Now, you're a JAG guy, right? Yes, sir. Okay, I'm going to give you one piece of advice. And take this with tongue-in-cheek. My definition of a legal opinion is something that's correct but not useful. <laughs> We have the question in the back. Next question. Hey, just a small question. Uh, Can you elaborate a bit on the structure that allows you to take advantage of NGOs and volunteers and not only appropriate that manpower but maximize uh, whatever their special skills or services are? Well, let me talk about the barriers to entry right now. First of all, there are cultural and leadership barriers to entry in that we don't want to deal with them during a crisis. If you don't do it ahead of time, you've got a legitimate complaint saying, I can't deal with 100 people who want to do 100 things that are just showing up. Okay? So we need to have a structured way to pre-certify and pre-train people and have a point where they all go and assemble and we can get them involved so we minimize the number of spontaneous, unaffiliated volunteers. Let me give you a good example. During Hurricane Katrina, I had a huge problem with animals. Pets, animals, writ large. There were people in Katrina that died with their pets because they didn't know what to do with them and they wouldn't leave them. On the other hand, we had cars coming into town that said FEMA Animal Rescue on. They were collecting animals and driving away and we never saw them again. 
It got so bad, I got a large animal vet from the Center for Disease Control and created an animal coordination function in my staff. We started collecting all the animals that were there, and we had between LSU, which helped us out a lot with their campus, uh, and we created a place to actually bring the dogs that we were collecting in New Orleans up to a shelter in Mississippi. uh, 75% of the dogs we took out of New Orleans were pit bulls. We put them into a shelter in Mississippi, and I, I swear to God, folks, two weeks later, it was raided by armed men, and they stole all the dogs to put them into dog fighting. We had to have an armed guard around the shelters for pets. So... Somebody comes up and says, I want to do animal rescue in New Orleans. We're saying, well, you got to they go to Channel 4. I'm here. I want to help. They won't let me in. As a result of that, we actually sat down. We wrote an annex to the National Response Framework that allows for pre-certification of vets and other people that want to get involved and credentialing so they can have access and security and a place for them to go and bring them in. I would submit to you that's what we need to do. If you don't do that, you descend into this chaos where you can't separate the good guys from the bad guys and you can't control access and you have those kind of things happening. Somehow we have to create that kind of functionality in the NGO community. We have to create a way to bring them in. And the biggest issue right now probably is liability. Are they covered in terms of liability for their actions as part of the response when if you're part of the federal government or a contractor, those are instituted either in contract law or in U.S. statutes regarding your coverage if you're engaged in a good faith effort to try and respond. Not easy, but we've got to attack it. Uh, Thank you for being here, Admiral. Uh, Two quick questions. One, are you still on active uh, reserve so we can call you back at the next disaster? No. (laughs) Actually, that was my opinion. It was my wife's answer. Uh, a little more seriously, though, uh, you've been here several months now, and uh, we obviously have a, a pending disaster here. We just don't know when it will happen. What, uh, from your perspective, uh, are the things that we still need to do to effectuate some of the lessons you've learned at some of these other disaster spots? I'm going to make this really easy at the risk of being oversimplistic. Uh, the way I describe this when I talk to anybody about your question, and it's a great question, we have to create resiliency. And Alan's definition of resiliency is anything from making you more prepared, making you more effective in the response, making you effective in the recovery, and getting you back to normal, what the new normal is, as soon as you can. And so you say, all right, that's a great answer, Alan. What are the components of resiliency? Well, I would tell you there's an individual component. A lot of people will tell you this preparedness. I take resiliency as a life cycle of managing and surviving an event. And down at the individual level, it's probably things you wouldn't think about. If you would ask Craig Fugate, the director of FEMA, was the single most important thing that would increase personal preparedness and resiliency in this country, the answer would probably surprise you. He would tell you it's fiscal literacy. Because fiscal literacy is an indication of people's ability to be compliant with orders that are given, mobility, decision-making, range of options, and their ability to be resilient as individuals. I would tell you probably is child nutrition, education, density of underserved minorities in high-rise buildings, lack of transportation, their ability to be compliant with orders that are given, 
think that's all involved in it. So if you really want to focus on these things, you have to go after the root causes because events don't create the preconditions, but events exacerbate the the conditions that exist. And the metaphor I use, it's like a person that has a low immune system getting sick. We need to create immunity against these things inside our communities and ourselves, and that will result in resiliency. It's probably oversimplistic. I can talk for hours on this, but that's generally the way I look at it. We have a question in front. What was your take on the way the Japanese responded to their disaster based on what we knew? Well, first of all, uh, let me make a couple of caveats. The question was uh, how did the Japanese respond and my thoughts on that. Uh, It's a very different country. They have a different form of government, and they have a different culture. They're very stoic culturally. They have a parliamentary form of government. Some things we need to understand. First of all, they just had a change in government in Japan. They have a brand-new prime minister and a brand-new cabinet set of ministers and a party that hasn't been in power in decades. And in most parliamentary systems, the ministers are responsible functionally when something happens. It's the same all over the world where you have that type of system. They do not have the equivalent of the Federal Emergency Management Administration. The prime minister has basically self-designated himself as the principal federal official. He's taken accountability and responsibility. Uh, the, the problem is uh, the span of control, the, te- the technical challenges that are associated with it. And one thing that, that they didn't anticipate I think is very, very important, and I'll p- compare and contrast this to the oil spill. People can have comments about how well BP did or how the system worked, but the fact of the matter is after the Exxon Valdez, we passed legislation that created our ability to legally designate a responsible party and hold them accountable for costs, recovery costs, damages, and everything else. It also gave me as a national incident commander the legal authority to direct them to do something under the Clean Water Act and the Oil Pollution Act of 1990, and failing to do that, they were subject to civil and criminal penalties. Now... Did I ever have to serve a warrant on Bob Dudley? No. They didn't have to be told. They knew it. I don't believe that same structure exists for the oversight of the Tokyo Electrical Power Company and the, and, and the interaction between the Japanese government and TEPCO. I think there's an advisory role that their Nuclear Regulatory Commission plays. But the ability to actually give an order to somebody saying this is the effect you are to achieve and direct that under law does not exist in Japan. I think we'll be the subject of some discussion moving forward. We have, time for, one, we have time for one last audience question. Hi. Good evening, Admiral. Thank you for being here. Um, throughout the course of the BP spill, there were a lot of stories about uh, different solutions. I'd love to know your thoughts or maybe a story about what it was like during that time, especially um, the, the dispersant that was used. If you could share some information on that. Sure. I have a couple of, you can call them Allen's corollaries or theorems or whatever. The worst time, the very worst time to do oil spill R&D is during an oil spill. (laughs) Okay. We had thousands of unsolicited offers, offers for assistance. Please do this. It will solve your problem immediately. So many that we could not intelligently sort them out. So job one is don't do it during a spill. Remember I talked about a half-life of moving quickly when you have consensus? 
within two and a half years or three years after the passage of the Oil Pollution Act of 1990 following the grounding of the Exxon Valdez, what were 20 to $30 million a year annually be put into R&D went to zero in the federal government and, did never, and it never recovered. So this notion of ongoing research and development that focuses on technology to respond to spill response is something that's very important. Regarding dispersants, I don't have a lot of time. I'm going to make this, uh, given the information we have right now, the fact that those things were tested on a schedule approved by EPA. We tested them during the spill by mixing them with the uh, oil from the Macondo well and found it no more toxic than the oil itself. It allowed us to disperse the oil into smaller droplets that would allow it to be biodegraded more quickly. And I'll make this statement, and I don't have a lot of time to explain it. There are a lot of things I would do differently in this response. Regarding dispersants, there is nothing, nothing I would do differently. Okay. Thanks, sir. Well, thanks, uh, thanks to Admiral Allen. Thanks to all of you for coming and for your questions. Uh, the next event, which uh, I it was right there in front of me, they're telling me, May 24th uh, this year, Art Kellerman, who's the head of um, Rand Health, will be here talking about the issues involving cost containment, quality delivery of quality of care, and I hope you all can make it uh, for that. Jim, can I give us just a second? Sure. Art Kellerman is terrific. This guy is ACES. He and I are working with non-governmental organizations and public health issues associated with the oil spill, and we're working with Rajiv Shah over USAID on what we can do in getting better international linkages and more resiliency from the public health side. Great guy. Great advertisement. Thanks, Fed. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.